0: Lefevre vs. Ferguson Virginia Lefevre is the wife of her late husband, William Lefevre. Ferguson plays a role of catching the murderer, but did he really? (music) September of 1988, William Lefevre had a family dinner with his kids at their house. William, William fell asleep on the couch after dinner and remained at the house overnight. William acted strangely during the night, similar to the manner in which he acted when he had used illegal drugs in the past. There is no dispute that William had problems with substance abuse. He was roaming around the house naked and acting as if he was hallucinating. The next day, Virginia discovered him and an old prescription bottle of an antidepressant that had been prescribed to her in the past. Only half a tablet remained in the bottle, even though there were approximately 20 pills left in the bottle the last time Virginia opened it. She then called paramedics when William seemed to get worse. At the hospital, William was between periods of calmness and lucidity to episodes of combativeness and incoherence. He admitted to a nurse that he had taken Virginia's antidepressant pills to kill himself. Later that day, he went went into cardiopulmonary arrest and died. Looking at this case, it seems like a simple open-shut case. The husband decided he didn't want to live anymore, so he overdosed. But what turned the suicide into a crime case? During this time, defendant Dr. Ricker was the Lickey County coroner. He was also at the hospital when William confessed his self-purpose overdose. He asked the nurses to inform him if William was likely to die because an overdose was in his jurisdiction of office. Consistent with his wishes, he was informed about the death and arranged to have William's body taken to the morgue. At the LHM morgue, he visually examined the body. He found it unusual for William's body to... To have so many bruises when the cause of death was only an overdose. Dr. Raker believed that there should be additional investigation before the birth certificate was found. He contacted a detective from the Ohio Police Department, Defendant Ken Ballantine, and planned on doing an autopsy on the body. This case is starting to get more suspicious. Why does William have so many bruises that are regular to the attempt of suicide? Could someone be trying to off him? Per Dr. Raker's request, Ballantine came to the LMH morgue to view William's body. Dr. Raker informed Ballantine that the injuries to William's body appeared excessive for a suicide or drug overdose. Following seeing the body and talking to Dr. Raker at the morgue, Ballantine asked Virginia to come to the police station to give a statement. She gave a written statement to the police and consented to a search of her home. Virginia's consent to search was conditioned upon the police not to search her kitchen trash. Why is Virginia automatically the first to be questioned about the murder? What would her motive be? Was it the bad blood between the couple indicating that Virginia had a restraining order against William? Or was it the divorce, which was about to be over in a week after William died? Hence, visiting visiting the family house to have dinner with his kids and sleeping on the couch. But why would Virginia do it? She was about to get out of a toxic relationship and pick up her kids and start over somewhere else. Anyways... Defendant Hatfield was a new work police officer who led the search of Virginia's home, which took place the same day as Virginia's statement to police. Ballantine, an assistant Lincoln County prosecutor, attorney Kenneth Oswald, was also present during the search. The following day, Ballantine got a warrant to search the kitchen trash. After inspecting the kitchen trash, they found hypo- hypodermic needles, multiple syringes, poisoned peanuts, and poisoned sunflower seeds for killing rodents, and some charred material. Officer Hatfield later determined that the charred materials were remnants of Smokum fermentation product. Detective Ballantine later found out that Virginia had purchased Smokums at a local hardware store the day before Williams' death. While interviewing the LaFever children, Ballantine learned that Virginia lit one of the Smokums in a bedroom while William slept and left the house with the chil- children and the family's cat. Not only did this look bad upon Virginia, but while the police were collecting witness statements, they came across a nurse, Deborah Howard, who said William told her Virginia forced him to take the pills and even beat him while he was passed out. Another witness, Anita Collison, said Virginia called her two days before William died, asking her if she knew anyone who would off someone for money and a bus ticket. Later, she called back and said that the question was a joke. My first question is, why is William still around Virginia so much when she has a restraining order on him? Yes, William might come around to see his kids, but why would he stay if he knew he was going to get beat? Could he possibly be hiding something and find it easier for them to believe it was Virginia? For all we know, William could have joined an illegal fight club and got on the bruises there. And Virginia making him take the pills? William was already known to do drugs. I believe he could have easily lied about being forced and even been searching for them himself. Okay, so now I admit it. After this, after this, the rest doesn't look good for Virginia LaFever. The evidence seems to be stacking up and up against her. Why did she ask someone if they knew an assassin? The final straw was probably when she revealed to Collison that William had a twenty thousand life insurance policy that would have changed after the divorce. Now, instead of witness statements, we may also have the motive. Now the investigators are looking for how Virginia Lefevre killed her husband. In this time, since the Lincoln County Coroner's Office did not have a forensic facility, it did not have the equipment to conduct a forensic autopsy or toxicological analysis, therefore Dr. Raker arranged to have the Franklin County Coroner's Office perform the autopsy. Dr. Raker had been referring cases to the Franklin County Coroner's Office since 1979 or 1980. Dr. Raker was not present for the autopsy and neither performed nor observed any toxicological testing on William's body. Patrick Fardell, a pathologist and defendant Ferguson, the chief toxicologist, performed the autopsy on William's body. After the autopsy, William's body was retor- returned to a funeral in Lincoln County. On October 12, 1988, About three weeks after William died, defendant Ferguson asked Dr. Raker to look for any intramuscular injection sites on William's body. Dr. Raker re-examined the body with a magnifying glass and found a potential injection site on William Lefevre's left buttock. Dr. Raker exercised a biopsy of the area and gave it to Detective Hatfield to hand over to the Franklin County Coroner's office. Dr. Raker performed a similar biopsy nine days later at Ferguson's request and gave those sim- samples to Detective Hatfield. A week later, William's body was transported back to the Franklin County Coroner's office for further examination. Investigators believe that Lafever, a nurse, administ- administered an injection and poisoned her husband. They said that when the drug didn't immediately kill her husband, she put her semi-conscious husband in a closed room with a pesticide fumigant. Only when that also failed to kill him did she call for medical help, they said. Two months after William died, Dr. Raker issued the death certificate, meaning that the cause of death is still being investigated. Dr. Raker later received an official report from the Franklin County's Coroner's Office stating that William died of exposure to Amphaline and Norphaline. Dr. Riker also received a toxicology report, which, suge- which suggest- suggests that there were intramuscular injections of amferoline due to the high levels of angeline found on the potential injection site in Williams' buttock, The toxicologists further believe that amferoline has also been amer- administered rectally due to high levels of the drugs in Williams' lower colon. After the evidence, witness statements, and the autopsy report, the matter was brought to a grand jury in November 1988. On November 30th, 1988, Virginia was blamed for the murder and arrested the following day. In January 1989, four months after William's death, Dr. Aker received a supplemental toxology report from Ferguson and Daniel Curry, PhD, the Director of Forensic Toxology at the Franklin County Coroner's Office. The extra toxicology test revealed that there were arsenic and inorganic sulfate in Williams' body. Ferguson concluded that chronic and acute poisoning by arsenic and sulfur oxides contributed to Williams' death. Incidentally, the primary gas emitted in smokums is sulfur dioxide. Following Virginia's prosecution, Dr. Raker issued a death death certificate which listed Amphaline and Norphaline poison as a cause of death and classified the manner of death as homicide. Virginia was overall convicted of aggravated murder and sentenced to life in prison. During this time period, Ferguson wrote a book or a screenplay about the trial, which he portrayed himself as a hero whose toxicology analysis solved William's death and proved that Virginia murdered him. Virginia believes that defendant Ferguson, Ballantine, and Raker concealed evidence that might have made her innocent, including the existence of Ferguson's sensationalist novel, and fabricated the theory of poisoning that led to Virginia's conviction. To me, it seems that Ferguson is so focused on himself that he has, that he has turned this crime into some type of story who, where he is the hero. It's like he has forgotten this is a real life with real people and real feelings involved. How did Virginia get out of this mess? In 2009, while watching the Ohio State-Michigan football game in prison, Lefevre saw a commercial that mentioned the Ohio State Alumni Association. It triggered a thought that someone should have checked Ferguson's credentials. With help from a friend, a private investigator, and her attorneys, they discovered Ferguson had lied about his degree. He said he had earned it in 1972, but actually didn't earn it until 1988. In 2010, Ferguson pleaded no contest to falsification charges and was convicted of lying under oath. Virginia fought for a new trial when she learned of Ferguson's lies and passed. In November 2010, the same judge who was in charge over her criminal trial two decades earlier granted Virginia's motion for a new trial and ordered Virginia's immediate release from prison. In the judgment entry granting Virginia's motion for a new trial, the trial judge made clear that he was compelled by fundamental fairness, concerns by his view that the prosecution had mounted a strong case against Virginia. This means that no matter how much Virginia appeared to be guilty, her main witness that put her away was a proven liar. The court relied heavily on the test done by Ferguson, and without his testify, there would not have been a case, meaning Mrs. Lefevre would not have spent 20 years of her life in prison. In April 2011, the Licking County prosecutor dismissed the case against Virginia. At the time of Virginia's release from prison, Alex, her son, was 26 years old. Alex's lawsuit alleges that he was wrongly separated from his mother during his f- formative years and that his mother's arrest and subsequent conviction caused him to be unlawfully seized and taken into custody by Licking County's Children's Services. In case number 2 11 slash C V slash 935, Virginia filed suit against Ferguson, Ballanty, and Hatfield Draker, the city of Newark, Franklin County, and Lincoln County, alleging federal and state cause of action ar- arising out of her wrongful arrest and conviction for her husband's murder. Alex followed suit, asserting federal and state claims against the same defendants. This court has previously granted summary judgment in favor of all of all other defendants leaving Ferguson the lone remaining defendant in these consolidated cases. Ferguson moved for a summary judgment on both of these consolidated cases, while Virginia asked for partial summary judgment on the issue of Ferguson's liability. Why do I believe Virginia Lefevre was innocent? Yes, there was evidence against her, but something didn't add up. She's a nurse. She would have known what would kill her husband right away. I believe if she wanted him dead that night, he would have been. And the thing about the $20,000 policy is she would have known that the bruises on William's body was suspicious. Why risk it when you could start a new life instead of the gambling, gamble of ending up in prison? And my main reason I believe Virginia is innocent is Ferguson. A man who writes a book about solving a murder and tells everyone how high and mighty he is should not be in the job. To decide if one is guilty, they must humble and they must be humble and clear-minded. Cle- clearly, this is not Ferguson. It also helps that, they, that the main thing against Virginia was, deci- was decided by someone who didn't even have a license at the time. The, at the end of the day, Virginia was released from prison, but still feels as if she hasn't gotten freedom. Due to spending 20 years in prison, for her, in prison, her life, family, and career was taken away from her. In this podcast, I have learned that people lie even on the stand, and it may not be as it seems. Anyway, that's the end of the serial podcast. Hope you enjoyed. And I got my sources from Dispatch.com and Casetext.com. Huge shout out, thank you.